the group that has gained power, then there's going to be oppression of some degree or another. And Solomon says they have no comforter. No one in power is going to help them because that would suggest a loosening of their grip on their position of power. However, faith in the God of all comfort has always sustained oppressed people, always throughout history. Harriet Tubman, who was born into slavery and suffered severe oppression, a leader of the Underground Railroad, she said, I said to the Lord, I am going to hold steady on to you, and I know you will say, see me through. God's time is always near. He set the North Star in the heavens. He gave me the strength of my limbs. He meant I should be free. Oppressed people can rise above their oppressors by life-giving faith in the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Psalm 9, verse 8 says, He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Whether we're oppressed or depressed, God is our refuge. We run to him. He's our shelter. And those who know your name and put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Psalm 119, this is my comfort and my affliction, for your word has given me life. And that's what sustains us, is God's word. Whenever we feel oppressed or depressed or we're going through a trial, we go to the word of God. We go to the testimony, and it just lifts us up and renews our spirit. 2 Corinthians says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And ultimately, we're set free and comforted from the greatest and the worst oppression ever, our own sin. John 8 says, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And we have been free from the oppression of sin, free, made free by the son. Verse 2, Solomon says, Therefore I praise the dead, who are already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. It's like Solomon's being just overwhelmed by the evil work that he sees under the sun and during our life, our time allotted here on earth by the Lord. And we can get the same way. We can be overwhelmed when we see the evil that's going on in the world and the insanity, the laws being passed, whatever it is and we can become discouraged. But someday soon, the work, the evil work done under the sun will be eliminated, possibly not even a memory. But until then, we are passing through a fallen world, and the evil work we see causes us to cling ever tighter to our good shepherd. <clears throat> In Sunday school, we tell the kids a story concerning the trials in this life and the evil work that is done under the sun and how we cope with it. So this is a Sunday school story. For the moment, you're going to have to pretend you're seven years old, which shouldn't, shouldn't be too hard. 
Um, so this story, I've told this before, but I think it's a good illustration. There are two kids. Both of them are believers. Both of them are Christians. One of them lives in the land of soft fluffies. The other one lives in the land of biters. The soft fluffies are these cute little creatures, these soft little things that come out and you can pick them up and you can hug them and you can squeeze them and they make you feel good. They purr and you just feel good when you're holding them. The biters are these mean little creatures with big teeth that come out and they bite your ankles. So one kid's living in the land of soft fluffies. Both of them believe in Jesus and the other one's living in the land of biters. And the question they ask the kids which one would you rather live, which land would you rather live in, soft fluffies or biters? So you have to be crazy to want to live in the land of biters. I, I much prefer the land of soft fluffies. However, which one of these kids do you think prays more? The one living in the biters, yes. Um, which one hangs on to Jesus more, more tightly? Which one is closer to Jesus because they're praying more and they're hanging on to Jesus? The one living in the land of biters. Which one becomes stronger? Which one knows Jesus better? So ultimately, which place is really better? Land of biters. Kids are smart, though, because I ask them, in the beginning, I'll ask them, which one would you rather live in? And these kids are so smart. They know where I'm going before I even go there. And they all say, land of biters, because they know what's going to be coming. So we've got to remember this when problems come. Tomorrow's Monday morning, and we know how Monday mornings can be. I hope you have a nice, soft, fluffy day, but it might be a biter. So we remember that tribulation produces patience. Verse 4. Solomon says, again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. He's speaking here of like class warfare, the envy and hatred and disdain of those who are successful or rich. This vanity and grasping for the wind has given birth to a lot of godly ideology. It's like, if you're well-off, if you're successful, if you're privileged, someone must be oppressed for you in order to get where you are. This may or may not be true, but you can see this kind of ideology, this kind of Marxist ideology being prevalent in our country today. Um, according to surveys, many, many, many young people say that this is the way, that Marxism, that socialism is the way to go, that that's the best way to build kind of a utopia on earth. Um, Lenin said, war to the death against the rich and their hangers-on, the bourgeoisie intellectuals. This is the practical commandment of socialism. Our common aim is to clean the land of Russia of all vermin, the rogues, the rich. It's a quote from Lenin. Historian Stephen Klatkin wrote in the Wall Street Journal that they estimate that under communist regimes, approximately 65 million people have died under communist regimes, regimes, according to demographers. And these deaths were a result of mass deportations, forced labor camps, and police state terror, but mostly from starvation. Any attempt to establish an earthy utopia outside of God, outside of Christ, is evil and it's dangerous and it's doomed. 
First Timothy says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Is there any more thing more valuable than to have godliness and to be content and not to be striving? The rich are paupers compared to the person who has godliness with contentment. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Laziness is a common thread through the writings of Solomon and how it leads to destruction. In Proverbs, he says, the desire, the desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Verse 6, better a handful with quietness than both hands full, together with toil and grasping for the wind. First Timothy says, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness, as we said before, with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. But having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and to many foolish and harmful lusts, which draw men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierce them through themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Pursue those things that bring life, that give life. Solomon goes on, he says, Better a handful with quietness than both hands full, together with toil and grasping for the wind. Quietness. Few things are more valuable in this life today than quietness of soul and spirit. It doesn't mean to be silent. It doesn't mean that we never speak up or we never talk. It speaks of calmness, of not being fearful or anxious. Speaking to women, Peter says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel, but rather let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And you can, excuse me, you can see that in Christian women. You can see a strong, calm courage, as opposed to the phony, self-promoting self-confidence that the world expounds. It speaks to those who heed the words of the Lord in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Verse 7, he says, Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors. Nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Speaking of someone who is alone, whose only interests are his own, who only have, who only have themselves to live for, and yet works, strives, and sacrifices in order 
to attempt to achieve only his desire. Solomon says this is vanity, so how do we escape this life of vanity? The answer is to live for Christ, to live for Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. To live for Christ means we no longer live for our will or desires, but for his purpose and desire. So the question is, how do I live for Christ? Do I just make up my mind one day to do it? Do I do, I do it by my own energy or effort? It's we, You make your desire known in prayer. Lord, take my life. God gives us what we want. If we want to live for Christ, if we know that there is no other life other than to live for Christ, God will hear that prayer and answer it. When we get out of bed in the morning and we sit before the Lord, and in spite of our limitations, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of ourselves, we pray, Lord, today I pray to live for you in truth. Those who live for Christ in truth experience a freedom unequaled by anything that the world can offer. Deliverance from this body of death. There is purpose, there's adventure, there is joy unspeakable. To be free from oneself and to live for Christ is life. There is no other life. Verse 9, Solomon says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So two are better than one. They have a companion for productivity. They have a good reward for their labor, for help in need. If they fall, one will lift up his companion. For comfort in life, they keep each other warm. For safety and security, two can withstand. According to psychologists, one of the major plagues of this modern age is loneliness, especially among young people. Studies have shown that the majority of young people feel that they are alone. They experience constant loneliness. There are reasons for this. The age of social media, which is a counterfeit for fellowship, is one of the main reasons that people feel isolated and feel alone. Also, pandemic restrictions had something to do with it. People have a need that is not being met, the need to know that someone genuinely cares for them, the need for unconditional love, the need to know God. It is not good for man to be alone, God said in Genesis. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The believer is never alone. People can feel alone in a crowd. People can feel alone in a church. People can feel alone in a marriage. We need companionship. And what a great gift it is for a believer to be part of a fellowship of believers, to be of one heart and mind, of one accord with those in whom the Spirit of God resides, to experience the love of Christ shining through his people. There is absolutely nothing like it in this world. This fellowship of believers is our wholeness and our witness to the world. Jeremiah 31, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. 
I have loved you with an everlasting love. We are never alone. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm always with you. I'll be with you to the end, to the end of the world and with an everlasting love. You know, I tell the kids in Sunday school that God already sees you in heaven. He loved you before you were born, before he created the earth. He loved you forever. We tell him, if you, you, know, you can doubt a lot of things in this world, but we should never doubt the love of God that God has for us through Christ. So loneliness is like a plague in our world today, in our country today. Yet an occasional dose of loneliness may be good for the soul if it causes us to run to our creator who has never left us. To be alone with the Lord is heaven on earth. In the strength of a three-ply cord, it cannot be broken, Solomon says. God is that third ply in a marriage, in a family, in any relationship. Those who have received Christ, who know the love of God, and thus desire above all things to obey him, these relationships cannot be broken. 13. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. There's that old saying that there's no fool like an old fool, and it's true. The elderly should have gained much wisdom simply through life experiences. The foolishness of an old fool is encased in cement, somebody said. But how faith-affirming it is to fellowship with elderly people who have followed the Lord for years, have gone through life's most grievous trials, and yet today they are still following the Lord. To see that example, to see that witness, that reality of Christ. To observe old, older saints who have been hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. They've been perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed someone in whom the life of Jesus is manifested in their mortal body. Psalm 48 says, For this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. Isaiah 46, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, and every one of us, Every one of us can say that. We look back in our lives and we can say that we have been upheld from birth, carried from the womb by the Lord. The mercy that God has had on us every single day of our lives. Since the day I was born, it's just been mercy every single day of my life. Everyone can, every one of us can say that we have been upheld and carried because God has chosen to have mercy on us for no earthly reason. Verse 4, it says, Even to your old age I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. That's a great scripture, especially for us old people. Verse 15, I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king, yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. 
Speaking here of fleeting fame, someone wrote, quote, he has reached a pinnacle of human glory only to be stranded there. It is yet another of our human anticlimaxes and ultimately empty achievements, end quote. So that's verse four. So might as well just do a couple of verses in verse five, in, in chapter five. Verse one in chapter five. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. In the original language, this word here has a double meaning. It means to pay attention and to obey. It's like the words of Samuel to Saul. To obey is better than sacrifice. Verse 2, do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before the Lord. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. The old saying, better to keep silent and have people think you're a fool rather than open your mouth and leave no doubt. Few words. The, remember um, Elijah and the priests of Baal fighting it out on Mount Carmel. The priests of Baal played, prayed hard and long on Mount Carmel. Elijah prayed short and sweet and full of faith to the living God. God heard and beautifully answered Elisha's prayer. Sometimes we think that we have to have the words to explain things to God when we pray, or to persuade him in granting a request. God knows what we want before we speak. He knows what we need. He knows what he's going to do before we speak. Then why take the effort to pray? because it's a relationship between us and our God, our Creator. It's not a debate, and it's not a legal argument. It's relationship. Verse 4, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Making vows before the Lord. And I think probably all of us at some time or another have done this. Lord, I promise, if you do this, I promise I will, and you just fill in the blank. And there have been people who I know who have made vows like that, and the Lord took them up on it, and they actually fulfilled their vow in service to the Lord. The thing is, according to Scripture, the Lord takes making promises very seriously, but there's a phrase, setting yourself up for failure. Lord, I promise I'll never do that again. Lord, I promise I'll never go there again. Lord, I promise never to think that again. Or be like Peter and Mark. Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. I promise, Lord, I'm going to stick with you. I'm not going to deny you. I'll stay with you. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. They all made oaths. They all made that vow. Lord, we're going to stay with you. We are not going to chicken out. We're going to, even if we have to die with you, we're going to stick with you. And then a few hours later after the oath, but again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. 
Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word that Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. John 15 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. But without me, you can do nothing. Without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, in the flesh we can do nothing. But all things are possible through Christ. I can do some things in my strength. I can fail, I can chicken out, I can miss the mark, I can sin. It's like that great prophet Clint Eastwood said, a man has to know his limitations. I wish I could do a better uh, imitation of Clint Eastwood. Rob does a good one. Um, Romans 7, verse 18. Paul, recognizing this, that he could do nothing within himself. He says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I don't do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O, re o wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. In Romans 8.1 it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And if the Spirit of God dwells in us, then we are walking according to the Spirit. And there is no condemnation. We don't live by the promises we make to God. We don't live by the vows that we make to God. We live by the promises he has made to us. Second Peter says, verse, chapter 1 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which he has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Again, it's not our promises to God, it's not our will. It says in the Bible, it's not, not according to him who wills or him who runs, but according to God who shows mercy. And I like the beginning of that, of those verses. Peter says, grace and peace to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We see what comes to us as we grow in the knowledge of our God. Grace and peace come to us. The world needs that more than ever. It needs to see that grace and that witness of that peace in, in, in believers. We wonder why people say the church isn't as effective as she should be. And we wonder, where is the revival that we always pray for? 
the church knows the word, what the word of God says. Maybe we fall short in knowing the God who said it, lacking that grace and that peace that is a witness to the world. Verse 6, he says, Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. He's talking about making a vow to God and then saying, I really didn't mean it or forgetting it. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. The words that we say to God are heard. Verse 8, if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at this matter, for high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. There is an underlining law that supersedes any oppression or evil working under the sun. And that is that evil doesn't win. Evil will not win. David wrote in Psalm 37, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. So we know that evil is going to come and God is going to put an end to the evil work that is done under the sun. All the insanity and craziness that we see is going to end. So what do we do? How do we live? He goes on and he says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Um, one more verse. Verse 10. He who loves silver and will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance will with increase. This is also vanity. Someone wrote, if anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it is the emptiness it leaves. Man with eternity in his heart needs better nourishment than this. So, leave with that verse. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. So, Father, we come before you and we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And we pray, Lord, enable us to do that, Lord. We pray that you would fill our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would live for you in truth, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would live by the promises that you give, Lord, we pray. And we pray, above all things, that we would know you, Lord that we would be constantly growing in our knowledge of you and constantly receiving that grace and peace that you offer us, Lord, that the light would shine to this world around us, Lord. So this week, Lord, please, Lord, take our lives, Lord. Cause us to live for you in truth, Lord, we pray, because there is no other life, there is no other joy. And we praise you, Lord, and we thank you. And we thank you, Lord, that you desire this and you will do it. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.